0: So this morning we are beginning a new sermon series uh, entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? A question I'm sure familiar to most of us, coined by the iconic Mr. Rogers some 50 years ago at the start of his PBS broadcast of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Not sure that I'm sure that many of you saw the documentary that was in the theaters not long ago that chronicled the evolution of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and its effort to teach American children the countercultural message of grace and community at the height of the Vietnam War and its accompanying protests in the wake of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and its accompanying protests. And for 33 years hence. Fred Rogers, a Presbyterian minister, walked into the TV rooms of millions of little children and parents alike, hung up his coat, put on his sweater, and asked them the world upside down question, won't you be my neighbor? When you stop to think of it, especially in this polarized world of ours today, Mr. Rogers' question has the potential to be a game changer, to rearrange the pieces on the board, to realign our world, to reconstitute even our relationships. It's a question that puts us in intentional company with others. It builds a bridge from one life to another. Won't you be my neighbor? Will you move alongside of me? Will you, will you come and share a boundary with me? Will you step onto my porch? Will you enter my domain?" The town where I grew up was a whites-only town and was not inclined toward open housing. And when the first African-American family moved into our city of 100,000 and in turn became the victims of hate speech and vandalism, their daughter started attending our junior high, she was my age. The school administration, however, did not assign her a locker or a locker partner. She was made to come to the office to get her books between classes. This sequestering went on for a week until a fellow classmate came into the office and asked, can she be my locker partner? Can she step onto my porch, enter my domain? Won't you let her be my neighbor? A game-changing question. But Mr. Rogers would have been the first to say that won't you be my neighbor is not a question original to him. You can't be raised in the church and attend seminary and be ordained as a Presbyterian minister as he was and not know that the echoes of won't you be my neighbor reverberate through the pages of the Bible. From beginning to end, the Bible struggles over and over again with this issue of how do we live with each other? How do we live with the stranger, with the alien, with the foreigner? How do we, do we distance ourselves from them, or do we draw them closer to us? What is to be our posture and our response to the one who is not like us, not in our tribe, not in our class, not in our circle, not in our political party? So, two examples of this neighbor question we find in our lessons this morning, the first being perhaps the most familiar story in the Bible from the Gospel of Luke, and the second from perhaps the least read book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. So hear the Word of God as it comes to us, first from Luke chapter 10. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, then who is my neighbor? He went and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, Well, the one who showed him mercy... Jesus said, go and do likewise. And then from Leviticus chapter 23, one verse, the 22nd verse. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien, i am the lord your god this is the word of the lord (laughs) let us pray by your grace and through your mercy we pray O lord that you will give us grace to hear these words give us spirit to hear only those words to point to you and to your word for we ask it in christ's name amen Wherever you have gone in your life and wherever you have ended up, it is almost a certainty that a surveyor has gone before you. Someone has gone before you to draw a line and a boundary, the crossing of which may come at your peril. Somewhere in your files, if you're a homeowner, there is likely a plot survey of where you live, an exact layout of your property, an exact line between you and your neighbor. Some of those boundaries are hard and fast. Some have fences and hedges and some, the only line you can see is the line that showed where the last person cut their grass. When you drive from state to state in this fair land, you cross a border that is rather porous. You can come and go as you please, unless you live in New Jersey, then you have to pay to get out. (laughs) When you drive through a town and hear that so-and-so lives on the other side of the tracks, you know that the surveyor of racial and economic history has drawn a line, sometimes an impenetrable line. When you pull up at a gated neighborhood and ask permission to enter through the gate, your hope is to cross into an enclave, a domain that only the invited are welcomed in. Most of our lives we are dealing with lines and boundaries, some real, some imagined, some hard, some fast. When Jesus tells us the story of the Good Samaritan, he's telling us a story about lines and boundaries. These travelers, three travelers, pass by a beaten man on the road, and there's something that keeps those first two religious men from approaching the beaten man. Some line they will not cross, some boundary they will not violate. Maybe maybe it's because he's a stranger, maybe it's because they don't want to get involved, maybe it's because you know they're too religious for this, this potential unclean person but there's just some line they won't cross but when the third man meanders by a suspicious Samaritan with centuries of surveyed boundaries between him and this beaten man uh, something happens and he steps across the tracks and over the line trespasses into the concern of another human being, and the result is he empties his wallet and makes sure that the man gets the help he needs. Here, he says, step onto my porch, enter my domain, let me offer you my oil, my wine, my bandages, let me give you a little piece of me. I wonder if Jesus hasn't just put into a story what the old testament puts into a commandment that little, that little one verse commandment from Leviticus where the good lord says to his people you know when it comes to the boundary around your field and the fruit of your land i command you not suggest to you i command you to welcome across the line of your property the stranger and the poor the alien the foreigner and let them glean from you let them gleam from your harvest in fact leave part of the harvest for them invite them onto your fields onto your porch let them enter into your domain give them a sign that you really mean it when you say that the line between me and thee is not so hard and fast in other words Figure out a way to ask the question, won't you be my neighbor? What, what can I do? What can I say? What, how can I act that says to this person, I want you alongside. I, I want you on my porch. I want you in my domain. In Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird, she tells the story of a southern lawyer, Atticus Finch, and his two children, Jem and Scout, who lived through the racial drama of an Alabama town in the 1930s. Several plots run through the story, and one of them has to do with a neighbor to the Finches, Boo Radley. His name is Arthur Radley, but the town calls him Boo because he's sort of a ghost, a a recluse, hidden away in his home, subject to the speculation of the townsfolk as to who and what he really is. Is he crazy, is he a monster, is he a danger to the town? Stories swirl about his childhood and his inclination toward violence. The children are fascinated with this man whom they do not know and have not seen. The outset of the story, the boundary between the neighbors might as well be as as wide as the Grand Canyon. But along with a friend, the kids carry out little reconnaissance missions into Boo's backyard and onto his porch to see if they can figure out what this man is really all about and to try to maybe even draw him out of the house. The closer they get, the more afraid they become. And at any hint of discovery, they turn and run. And yet it is these attempts to draw nigh to Boo and to draw Boo out to them that are soon met with a response. Boo begins to leave the children little gifts inside the knothole of a tree. Some chewing gum, a broken watch, Indian head pennies, and two soap dolls carved to look just like them. Quiet efforts by a quiet man to reach out and say, won't you be? My neighbor. At one point, even when Scout falls fast asleep outside, Boo, without her knowing it, sneaks from his house, covers her with a blanket so she won't get cold. And at the course, at the end of the story, when the children's lives are threatened, it's Boo who saves them. And at the end of the story, Scout reflects and she says this Neighbors bring food with death and flowers with sickness and little things in between. Boo was our neighbor. He gave us two soap dolls, a broken watch and chain, a pair of good luck pennies, and our lives. Boo was our neighbor. He gave us two soap dolls, a broken watch and chain, a pair of good luck pennies, and our lives. They just never knew who was living next to them. At the risk of appearing morose, I confess to you that my favorite section to read in the newspaper is the obituary section. First, I'm glad to read it, not to find my name but also because I get to read the stories of people's lives. And invariably when I'm reading about someone, particularly someone famous, I'll come across a little detail about their life that surprises me and I'll say, ha, I never knew. When I read about another Mr. Rogers, Roy Rogers, the happy singing cowboy, and, and learned that the happy cowboy and his happy bride, Dale Evans, along the way of their life, buried three children under the age of 10. Hmm, I never knew. Or Charles Schultz, the most famous cartoonist of the 20th century, who brought smiles to millions and millions, lived a life of early repeated failure and chronic unhappiness. Huh, I never knew. Or Carl Stoltz, the creator of Little League Baseball, was a man who had no sons. He did it for the neighborhood kids. Hmm, I never knew. We spend so much time, don't we, categorizing, systematizing, stereotyping our neighbors near and far, when there is so much still to learn, so much of their stories we don't know. Dr. Robert Coles, the great Harvard psychiatrist, tells of being a young psychiatric resident in a hospital and working with a challenging patient with whom he was making little progress. Every week he would report this case to his supervisor with every imaginable piece of medical jargon he could muster to prove his acumen and diagnosis. And finally the supervisor said to him, Bob, over these weeks you've told me many things about your your patients but you have not yet told me her story. The people who come to us, he continued, bring us their stories. They hope to tell them well enough so that we understand the truth of their lives. They hope we know how to interpret their stories correctly. Don't you wonder if the greatest thing we have to give one another is the telling of our stories? that before we analyze the alien the next door neighbor the boo radleys of the world before we categorize tribes of people and stereotype them we let them offer to us some touchstones of their story a soap doll a good luck penny grain from the field oil and wine for a wound a shelf in our locker maybe that's the greatest gift we can give is to give someone else the chance to tell their story. You can imagine, can't you, that when the Good Samaritan arrived beside that poor beaten man, the first question he might have asked was, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. The greatest thing we can give another is to let them tell their story and to somewhere, somewhere, and to somewhere along the way say, I never knew. I never knew. What a gift. And with each story, our lives grow. We become a bit more compassionate, a bit more understanding, a little more broad, a little more merciful. Don't you wonder when the Bible gives us commands like opening the borders to our land and Jesus tells us stories about crossing lines that what is being pointed out is some deeply, deeply embedded law of the universe, some great structure of reality that when we avail ourselves of the other, of the alien, of the stranger, and the stories they bring, the stories of their lives, that what can happen is that we become more alive ourselves that though it looks like we might be helping them, what might really be happening is that they are saving us, that my well-being is somehow tied into your well-being, that asking, won't you be my neighbor, may be the most selfless and selfish thing we do. So it matters, I suppose, that we set aside a day like today And imagine the world coming together around the same table, the same bread, the same cup. Every kindred, every tribe, as the old hymn puts it, aliens, all of us, from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south. And the host gathers us up and has us sit, and he says, Tell me your story, and I'll tell you mine, and we'll tell our stories to each other. And along with them, a little grain, a little oil, a little wine, a soap doll or two, and a shelf inside our lockers. And who knows, but in the end, we may become neighbors. And in doing so, save the world.